Gouge Street. Warren oh. Street. Houston Road. Income and Terrace. Clapham South. What? <laughs> Oxford Circus. Morning, is it Crescent? Yep. Yep. Thank you. Present Everyman's Guide to Mornington Crescent, a two-part examination of the popular parlour game presented by Raymond Baxter. What you have just heard were the voices of Tim Brooke Taylor, Willie Rushton, Graham Garden, and Barry Cryer playing that extraordinary game, Mornington Crescent. Now the fourth most widely played parlour game, after Monopoly, Scrabble, and Stump. Yet, whilst the histories and rules of those three games are common knowledge, Mornington Crescent remained shrouded in mystery, a mystery that we now hope to clear up. This week, we will examine the history and impact of the game on world culture, and next week, we'll reveal exactly how it is played. Most people seem not only to know how to play Mornington Crescent, they also love it or so it would appear from the comments I received when I went out and about with my tape recorder. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful. It's inspirational on the tube. I learnt it from my mother, who is quite an expert, really. It's a game for clever people. It's just a fantastic game. It, it really makes life bearable on this tray. Well, I think it's marvellous. I mean, I don't know what we'd do without it if we didn't have it every morning. I used to do it solo, but found it was so much better in the group. Well, now, of course, we get the latest telex messages from London that arrive early in the morning along with our stock quotations so that we can pinpoint the finer points of the game. I know my wife thoroughly enjoys it. <laughs> I think it's a question of being intuitive. And women are intuitive, you know. Мы проводим каждый вечер играем в эту игру. И Mornington Crescent, конечно, тоже очень важный. Well, it's one of the best games because, as you can imagine, we have a lot of time to kill down here, and it's one of the best ways to pass the time away. But the game is not only popular with the public at large and the I'm sorry I haven't a clue teams. It has several celebrated and distinguished supporters as well. Indeed, for novelist Beryl Bainbridge, it is much more than a game. In my case, it just comes much nearer home because I live round the corner from the actual place. I live in uh, Albert Street. And she worries for its future. I think it's getting too rigid. It's getting too understandable. That's what worries me. How did a game which has captured the imagination of so many leading celebrities originally come into being? One of the people who has investigated its early history is Barry Cunliffe, professor of archaeology at Oxford University. He is now convinced that the game was brought to this country by the Romans, um, but I think the real evidence comes from Fishbourne, which is this large Roman building that um, we excavated a few years ago down near Chichester, where they've laid out very carefully on the floor, in, in mosaic, um, a, a version of the game which they would use to initiate people into the, the arts and the skills of the game. Now, you would expect um, there to be a whole range of helpful scenes around the walls, um, and we've got little bits of the wall painting, ladies being whipped and that sort of thing. And over in one corner, for example, there's it's clearly an orgy scene where I suppose those who are waiting for their turn will just sort of sit down and amuse themselves for a while. So it seems clear that the game originated with the Romans. 
But what was it called at that time? Professor Cunliffe again. They were rather careful of their sacred names, and you wouldn't actually use the name of a sacred game. You would refer to it uh, obliquely in some way. But there are, there's a rather bad text found on one of the forts in Hadrian's Wall, uh, just written on a, a little piece of wood, and you've just got the indentations of the stylus through, through the wax. And it looks like Manidolium Lunatus. So the Romans played Manidolium Lunatus in the first century AD. But what happened to the game then? Well, apart from some vague references in Doomsday Book, nothing is recorded of the game until the 14th century and Geoffrey Chaucer. Dr. Graham Garden, besides being a household name in other fields, is also visiting lecturer in New Miami University. He has written a thesis on Chaucer's links with Mornington Crescent, and here is an extract from a recent symposium recorded in the university. Scholars nowadays are generally agreed that it is unlikely that Geoffrey Chaucer ever actually played Mornington Crescent as such. Right. This conclusion is supported by the fact that during the latter part of the 14th century, there was no underground station at Mornington Crescent. Indeed, in Chaucer's time, the nearest one would have been at Blackfriars. However, it must be borne in mind that in, say, the year 1390, London was a good deal smaller than it is now, and therefore Blackfriars was much closer then to Mornington Crescent, had it in fact existed, which it didn't. But if Mornington Crescent was unknown to Chaucer, <coughs> in much the same way uh, it was unknown to Genghis Khan and St. Paul the Apostle, there are clues as to his knowledge of an earlier primitive form of the game itself, Canterbury. In his narrative poem, The Canterbury Tales, which incidentally throws a fascinating light on Chaucer's speech impediment, the author chronicles a pilgrimage from London to Canterbury using exactly the same rules as a player today would employ to plot his progress from, say, Oxford Circus to Mornington Crescent. We find proof enough of this in the prologue. When that in Tommy for little apples fall, so must men to Aldwych go, from Cannon Street on the diagonal. So it is evident that the game was flourishing in Chaucer's time, and it soon became a game favoured by royal patronage. Indeed, Hollinshed's Chronicles record an historic match played by Henry VIII, Catherine Howard, his fifth wife, and Thomas Cranmer. The parts in this reconstruction are taken by Willie Rushton, Tim Brooke Taylor, and Graham Garden. your majesty to start our journey? <coughs> um, the Bear Garden. Your grace? A holy trinity, Aldgate. Can't. We dissolved it. Oh, yes, your majesty. I'm so sorry. Get on with it, man. Uh, Saint Bartholomew the Great, Smithfield. No lepers. Perhaps his majesty would prefer a game of stump. I would prefer, dear Archbishop, for you to continue the game without the employment of any more poxy French openings. Houndsditch. What? How? By horse. I'm afraid, Sir Thomas. By barge. Horse fart, he's right. Catherine. Ye bow of morning town. <laughs> As you heard, Catherine Howard won that game with a back-pass trump manoeuvre. Henry's response to her victory was swift and final. 
Some 70 years after Catherine's execution, we are in the midst of the greatest period of English drama and the career of its finest exponent. Shakespeare's works present many allusions to Mornington Crescent. For example, we find in Richard III, Act Three, Scene Four, My Lord of Ely, when I was last in Hoban. And again in Act Four, Scene Two, High-reaching Buckingham, the Marquis Dorset, as I hear, is fled to Richmond. Also in Henry V, the French king refers to You dukes of Orleans, Bourbon and of Berny, Alençon, Brabant, Bar and Burgundy. Uh, this, of course, was a sly dig at the French version of the game invented in 1540 and called Mornington Croissant, a game they played over breakfast. But the clearest references to Mornington Crescent occur in the first folio edition of Henry V, an edition now only performed very rarely. Once more unto the bank, dear friends, once more. And close black wall up with the bridge of red. Red bridge. In Hayes, there's nothing so becomes East Ham as Morden, Sheerness, and Good Beckentry. But when Plasto blows in our ears and imitate the Acton and the Onga, St. Stephen to New Cross, summon up St. John's Wood, disguise fair Leighton with St. Saviour's stage, or hang our lane and city. This confounded haze, Southfield with seven dials and Weybridge station. Now set Blackheath and stretch the box all wide, and teach them Kensington Gore and you, good Homerton, South Mims, Creeklade, Kingsland, Forest Mere, for St. Mary's and Kew, East Cheen and Walton on the Naze, that hath not Holborn, Leicester Square and Guise. I see on strand like Houndsditch, Pinner and Whips Cross. Hainote, Upham, and St. Bart's, the game's afoot. Follow your spirit, and be not rancorous. Cry God for Hurlingham, Dingwall, and St. Pancras! Coming closer to the present day, there is a wide variety of documentary evidence of the game's popularity and influence. For instance, Charles Horace Whitaker's 1927 book, Mornington Crescent Made Easy, sold over a hundred thousand copies and was translated into 15 languages. And this, despite an abridged and hopelessly inadequate chapter on the adult version of the game involving Soho Square. Also at this time, some enterprising musicians brought out a song about the game, and this was soon being sung in pubs and theatres up and down the country. I'm Lord Mornington Crescent, extremely unpleasant. I dress up in ladies' attire, and leap from the closet with a cry of, How was it? Then invariably pee in the fire. I'm dressed, dressed in mummy's own dress. I walk up pell-mell nature day. Almost everyone knows me as Cynthia or Rosemary. I'm Lord Mornington Crescent. Hooray, hooray. I'm Lord Mornington Crescent. And all of you isn't. I'm the last of the Makaloo line. The line. I've given up girls. Well, they say breeding tells. And, and it, it does. does. Oh, it does. Soon as Wang. I'm Chris, 
crest, a psychological mess. My ambitions to appear on page three. On page three. I sometimes get rather cross. I'm half the woman father was. I'm Lord Mornington. This pets me. Lord Mornington Crescent was sung there by the Crescenteers on a recording made in 1929. And of course the page three mentioned in the song was not page three of The Sun, it was in fact page three of Hansard, which was then seeking to increase its readership in the Lords. Mornington Crescent nowadays, however, is an altogether more serious affair. There is now a small band of professional players, including the I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue teams, who give demonstrations of the game and also participate in a series of sponsored competitions. Far more prestigious than those, however, is the amateur circuit, culminating each year in the World Championships. Last year, these championships were held in Reykjavik, and as usual, Radio 3 broadcasts street-by-street commentary. As you'll remember, the final was a taut contest between Egypt's Ahmed Kazir and the defending champion, Finland's Stig Snorgenborg. The commentator on this brief extract is Brian Johnston with statistical analysis from Bill Frindle. And good morning to our Radio 3 listeners. You join us on a bright, crisp morning in Reykjavik, and although the forecast has threatened some rain later in the day, this shouldn't interfere with the play too much here inside the hall. And now the champion is about to open the proceedings. He's leaning into the table with that fine, aggressive action of his. The Angel Islington. Hmm. The Angel Islington. That's remarkable. I don't think I ever remember the Angel being used as an opening gambit in the World Championship before. Perhaps the bearded wonder would check that for us. It certainly rocked Ahmed Kazir back on his heels. It immediately puts him in nip and cuts off his hindquarters in the sudden intersection. Brian, the Angel has been used once before in the Karachi final of 1972. Islington High Street's been used three times. Oxford Circus. Oh, and that's a jolly fine response from Ahmed. He's using Junkin's progression, which opens the game to suburban bidding and allows him to make a lateral shift in two. Ottomar Street. Oh, that's a mistake. He gives a chance to Ackers. B. Three. And he's missed it. We have to put that down as a chance. If Ackers had said Lansdowne Road, he'd have deployed a triple Helsinki, foreclosed the circle line, and reverse loop to Mornington Crescent in one. And that would have been the second fastest win this season after Humphrey Littleton's victory in the third round of the Mitsuhi Sonic Classic. And now Stiggers is wiping his brow with relief. And that's a move he's not made since the second round of the 1981 finals in Tokyo. Pentonville Road. Oh, and he's come out with Huguenot's gamble. What audacity. Downing Street. Mm. Oh, and Ackers has conceded. There's no hope for anyone who moves there. Mornington Crescent. And it's first blood to Stiggers. And while we wait for the players to change ends, I've just got time to thank Mrs. Williams, I think it is, yes, Mrs. Williams of Leeds, for the really delicious chocolate cake she sent us. Brian, in fact, that's the 15th cake we've received this year, and that's only two less than our world record of 17 cakes during the 1982 championships. And Stig Snorgenborg went on to take the title for the third year running. One person who was mentioned there, but who was not allowed to take part, is Humphrey Littleton chairman of I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, and according to many, the finest living exponent of Mornington Crescent. He feels very strongly about his exclusion from the World Championships. I mean, it was so stupid. Uh, it wasn't the fact that I was getting a fee from the BBC and therefore lost my amateur status. It was the fact that I officiated in a uh, game. On the other hand, the financial rewards must be some consolation, surely. Well, 
certainly you'd get a first prize on the professional circuit of something in the neighbourhood of 10,000, I don't like to talk about money, but 10,000 pounds. As little as that? Yes, yeah, because that's nothing to the uh, honour of, of winning the world championship. Yes. But you can imagine for me, I mean, I don't want to say too much about the thing. I enjoy, you know, officiating, and I'm sorry I haven't a clue. But you can imagine it's a bit like um, Harvey Smith or David Broom finding himself condemned to uh, judging donkey races on Blackpool Beach when he's taken part in in the highest form of the game. But even if Humphrey were allowed to compete in the world championships, for how much longer could he expect to do well? Mornington Crescent, like other sports and games, is becoming a young person's activity. This was amply demonstrated in a recent edition of Top of the Form, which included a round on the game. The teams were from King Henry VIII's school, Abergavenny, and Queen Elizabeth Boy's school, Barnet. And the question masters, as usual, were Paddy Feeney and Tim Gudgeon. John, when playing Crabbit's Rule, what must follow King's Cross? Uh, Baker's Rule? It's right, yes, because of the diagonals, of course. On to the other John, John Slattery, who famously said that she was not amused when she lost at Mornington Crescent. Um, um, I'll have to hurry you on this one, John. Uh, uh, Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria is correct. Well done. Do you know, in fact, who she lost to? Can you remember that? No, it doesn't matter. She was beaten by Disraeli. You still get your two marks. Good. Right, Christopher, who delayed starting a battle in order to complete a game of Mornington Crescent? Uh, was it Sir Francis Drake? <laughs> no, no, that, that was Bowles. So it's across to John for a bonus. John Slattery? The Duke of Wellington? The Duke of Wellington is absolutely right, and a bonus mark there too, John. Yes, of course, it was before the Battle of Aix-la-Chapelle. Actually, it was only a, a skirmish because Napoleon got tired of waiting and he marched on to Waterloo, as you know. And now we go on to Jonathan Allen. Um, back to the game itself now, Jonathan. Playing Buttons Opening and Without Passing Water, what is the shortest route from the Holloway Road to Mornington Crescent under curfew conditions? Holloway Road, Mile End Road, the Tower of London and Mornington Crescent. And absolutely no doubt about that one whatsoever. My goodness, Tim, they really know what they're talking Ah, about, don't they? Good answers coming. An extract from one of this year's top-of-the-form quarterfinals. But Mornington Crescent has become, for some, a serious danger. The danger of addiction. What is more, as far as agony aunt Claire Rayner is concerned, the problem of this addiction to the game is on the increase. I'm getting more and more letters every week. Indeed she is. One of these letters was from a London taxi driver. He decided that he could only cope if he went to destinations along routes allowed by Crabbit's rule. Now, this used to mean that he took about six hours to get from Heathrow to Piccadilly, which is about an hour longer than usual. Mm-hmm. So this, he, he'd been beaten up once or twice, you know, with rolled-up newspapers, and he was getting very really bothered about this. Another addict, whose name she gave us, lives in Hounslow, and he kindly agreed to be interviewed. To protect his anonymity, we recorded the interview in subdued lighting, and not in his own home, but in the home of his next-door neighbour, a Mr Taylor of 46 East Walk. Uh, quite frankly, Mornington Crescent cost me my job. I'm, I make no bones about it. It was, I suppose it was my own fault, but uh, once I was hooked... Well, uh, what was your job? Uh, I was a ticket seller on the central line. And in what way did well, this... Well, in, in the obvious way, really. Uh, somebody would come up to me in my booth and hold out a pound note and say maybe... Maybe Bond Street. I, uh, and, 
Uh, I couldn't resist, I, I suppose. I couldn't fight it. And the minute they'd say Bond Street, I'd come straight back with Turnham Green or, or Fulham Broadway or, or, or even Goldhawk Road. And very good play, or, too, or Westbourne Park. So. Good Lord, that's absolutely incredible. Well, I, I was playing at that level. Yes. Well, the worst was the time with this woman. She comes up and she says, Great Portland Street. I couldn't. I really couldn't help myself. I couldn't. No, but sure. I came out with Latimer Road. Oh, no. She was a player. She wham right back at me with Edgware a Road. And what did you do? Cockfosters. To a woman? She was class. We was at it hammer and tongs for half an hour. She, she'd give as good as she got. Who won? Oh, they broke us up. Bucket of cold water job. Half an hour, the queue for tickets was three times round the block. And so you, uh, you lost your... I lost my job, yes. And have you played since? No, never. Thank you for being so frank. Um, actually, where were you a ticket seller? Queensway. Fulham Broadway. Barons Court. Kentish Town. Stepney Green. White City. Embankment. Dagenham Heathway. Moor Park. Banjo. So what can be done to help these sufferers? Claire Rayner again. Fortunately, help is available. There's now an organisation called Mornington Crescent Anonymous. It's Mockers for short, M-O-L, so you, you follow it. Um, and I often say to people, putting the mockers on them is definitely the answer to their, their addiction. They're in Wimpole Street now, you know. They, they, their original offices were, were in Mornington Crescent itself, but it made life very difficult for addicts living south of the river. So they couldn't get to it if they were playing Lippmann's rules. But it isn't only players of Mornington Crescent who may need help. It now seems possible that the game itself is in jeopardy. Conservative plans for London following the abolition of the GLC will necessitate radical alterations to the rules. For example, one Tory proposal is to rename all streets with Labour connotations, including Trot Street, Livingston Road and High Street Ken. But leader of the GLC, Ken Livingstone, believes other Tory plans could be even more devastating. I don't think you're just going to get the abolition of all the names which have any connotation with the grand traditions of this great movement of ours in London. Um, but you'll get things like Penny Lane turned into Lawson Street and Hanger Lane into Britain Road and no U-turns allowed because it's contrary to government policy creates a climate of wishy-washy pinkoism. Now, you also know that great historical events such as the Toll Puddle Martyrs, I mean, they used to meet in a pub um, next to Mornington Crescent. And that's behind, as we understand it, behind the government's decision that Mornington Crescent should be one of the stations to close. But like other aficionados of the game, Ken Livingstone is determined not to give up hope. I think it's important to see some light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, the Labour Party is pledged to restore a, a GLC with wider powers. So we could perhaps have two or three Mornington Crescents under the, the next Labour government. And all this wickedness will be done away with, and once again people will be happy and dancing in the streets like Victory Day. Let us hope his dream is fulfilled. Next week, in part two of this programme, The Rules of the Game, we shall reveal to the uninitiated exactly how to play Mornington Crescent. Meanwhile, let's end this week as we began with the I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue teams. What are their favourite moves? I'd have to go for Knightsbridge to Ongar. Oh, I don't know. My favourite move, though, must be Knightsbridge to Ongar. Oh. <laughs> Knightsbridge to Ongar. Well, it has to be Ongar to Knightsbridge, but I suppose everyone says that. Everyman's Guide to Mornington Crescent was presented by Raymond Baxter. It was researched and compiled by Graham Garden, Tim Brooke Taylor, Willie Rushton, Barry Cryer, and the producer, Paul Mayhew Archer.
everything's all right and all the 